Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hey everyone, this is Josh. Thanks to everyone who heard the call in the last episode and became patrons. We got a good rush of patronage and it really warms my heart that so many people are supporting the podcast and supporting the work. And for those who are wanting to support this labor of love, becoming a patron is easy. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast and... In addition to supporting the time, vision, energy, money that goes into creating a podcast like this, patrons also get access to twice-monthly study groups and a variety of other benefits. So if you're interested in supporting, check it out at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. And as many of you know, I will be offering a year-long course of mythic immersion starting in October 2022. And I'll be opening it up for applications on April 1st. If you're interested in finding out more about this deep dive into the myths and how the myths can be translated ritually and somatically into our daily lives, then send me an email requesting info on the course at themythicbody at gmail.com. That's themythicbody at gmail.com. Now on to our episode. There was a moment four years ago or so, back before my first son was born, when his mother's belly was swelling and I was reflecting on all that was to come. I was feeling into all the joys to come, feeling into all the conversations we'd one day have and all the moonrises we'd someday gaze upon and the penguins in the storybooks and the trucks and tractors and elephant sounds and the pointing out of constellations high above. And then I realized something. I realized I'm going to have to explain war to him one day. I'm going to have to explain why humans war. He's going to look up at me, and I didn't even know then how blue those eyes would turn out to be. He's going to look up at me with those big blue eyes, and he's going to say, What's war? And that realization plunged me into some really deep waters of feeling. And that realization shattered me in a way that I'm still piecing together because I still honestly don't know what I will possibly say. Oh creator, oh creator, oh creator. These are raw, raw days. Creator, oh creator, oh creator, these are raw, raw days. I've always had a visceral reaction to war. I've actively protested every war my country has been involved in since I was a kid. I've been arrested for protesting war. 
I've been gassed and shoved for protesting war. I've felt a lot about war for a very long time. But there's something about being a father now that makes it more raw than it's ever been. I can't watch refugee children streaming over borders, their fathers staying behind to fight desperate battles. I can't contemplate toddlers in bomb shelters. How to explain the folly of their elders. How to explain the folly of their elders. How to release humanity from its fetters. I can't contemplate children subjected to the crushing noise and smoke and devastation without it stirring something so deep, so instinctive, a guttural cry of who has the right to do this to children? Who has the right? The snap of one man's finger sends a million children streaming over borders crying for their lost fathers. And with that cry, the urge to grow great wings of protective feathers and wrap them as far as I can over the earth and the waters, wrap them over the children and help keep them safe. And if these fragile wings are not enough, for surely they are not nearly enough, then to call, to call, if only in vain, to call ancient forces those distinct particular forces, those luminosities that arrive only in the rawest of times, that come only during wartime, only when the light is particularly stark, that come only when there is smoke to provide contrast to the intensity of their light, that come only with the presence of sooty tears and trees stripped of leaves, to call in Kiev's dark winter the holy angelic mothers and the feathered fathers with their sunlit spears, Calling, simply calling, keep the children safe. Keep the children safe. If many are to be believed, there are animate beings who arrive only in times of war. Kinetic beings, dynamic beings that come only during war. And each has its role to play. So if statues of St. Michael perched upon Ukrainian cathedrals contain within them a hidden living fire, then we can say together, come, secret fire, come to life. Come, Archangel, come to life, come to life, and keep the children safe. Come, Archangel, come to life, come to life, and keep the children safe. So yes, these are raw, raw days. Perhaps this episode is an attempt to answer that question of my sons that I know is coming one day. What is war? Why do people do this to each other? And I'll say up front, this isn't a political episode. In other words, I'm not interested in exploring the geopolitics of this current war and who's right and who's wrong and why this war and not others and transatlanto-Soviet security issues. Plenty of people are doing that. This is about seeking to understand something very deep within the human being, within us, within our somatic history. For as you know, I tend to take kind of an anthropological lens to things in this podcast. And when you see culture upon culture doing something, something repeated throughout history over and over in cultures small and large, in places on opposite sides of the globe, 
then you can start to surmise that whatever that thing is fills some deep somatic need. We humans war. Yes, there have been meaningful differences in the way we've done it. A Cheyenne warrior counting coup and tapping the braids of his enemy is different from the complete devastation of the advance of a Mongol horde. There is a notable uptick, as I mentioned in the episode on ancestry, in war among agricultural societies when compared with hunter-gatherer societies. But that doesn't change that war is so prevalent that it seems to almost be a need of ours. And this need, as we'll explore, is very deeply tied to the need that we have for ritual and the need that we have for trance and even the need we have for ecstasy. Some episodes back in the episode on reason, I said this. People need regular, cathartic, ritualized intensity. And if they don't have that cathartic, ritualized intensity, they will find ways to get it, up to and including slaughtering each other in the process. And this is something I've felt intuitively for a while. And then I found other thinkers who've seen it the same way. June McDaniel addresses this premise in her book Lost Ecstasy. Dan Carlin hints at it in Hardcore History when he talks about the trance state of the frontline soldier in World War II. Numerous returning soldiers have spoken of the prolonged trance of battle. Battle trance is now even an encyclopedic term thanks to the work of Joseph Jordania. The more I studied, the more I began to feel that war and ritualized consciousness alteration are deeply connected. And then I found Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Blood Rites, a deep anthropological and mythic look at why we war. This episode draws heavily from her book, and I highly recommend it. There are some fundamental things that I disagree with in her premise, but there's a lot that she lays out in her very expert way that is worth exploring. So yeah, this episode is an attempt to answer a question about why we war, why we invade and bomb and shatter and destroy and in the process kill our fellow human beings by the millions. And how, at its heart, the drive to do this is not so separate from the great drive we have to be subsumed into the greater universe world, to feel the individual self melt away in service of the larger, to find alterity, to find trance, to find ultimately bliss. For the search for pain and destruction is not without its deeper bliss, and the search for bliss is not without its pain. War is a misplaced longing for conjunctive bliss. War is a ritualized harnessing of feelings and drives that were once most often harnessed through initiation rituals. So war becomes the modern initiation ritual. It becomes the place where men, sadly, terribly, fulfill their need for ritual ecstasy. War and ritual ecstasy, this time on The Emerald.
At the beginning of Ehrenreich's book, Blood Rights, she talks about how the collapse of the Soviet Union was described as the end of history. The wars of the past are over, some declared at the time. Let's move on from the 20th century and its brutality that left 100 million dead. Let's go forward, forward into an unprecedented era of peace. Of course, fast forward two short years and thousands of Iraqis were dying in the first Gulf War. Five years later, there was a genocide in the Balkans. Humans had apparently not lost their appetite for killing each other. A string of wars followed, Gulf War II, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, Chechnya, Georgia, Israel and Palestine never really stopped warring at all, and now Ukraine. There's something innate to why we war. It's easy to look at the history of war and chalk it up to male aggression. It's certainly men doing most of the fighting, and men in war are brutal and aggressive. War is about men killing other men, right? And who kills most comes out victorious. But it's also not as simple as that. It's not just about being a killer. Brute aggression is not the only thing at play in war or in the desire to war. Nor is war only about abstract policy or the want for territorial expansion or the want to claim the stuff of others or the problems that arise from overlapping populations with different religious viewpoints. As much as we manufacture abstract rationales for war, we do it ultimately, as we do all things, for the feeling. We do it because it serves a somatic need. We do it for the associated states of consciousness. War has to do with very central drives, drives that we've explored a lot on this podcast. And fundamentally, war fulfills many of the same needs that ritual trance ecstasy does. In fact, war and ritual ecstasy share a whole lot in common. How so? Both war and ecstatic ritual involve syncopated group action. The soldiers march like the ritual dance step is repeated over and over again. What happens over time? The repetitive footfall induces trance. The collective begins to move as a living, breathing unit. And so there is, as I spoke about in the Resonance episode, what's called entrainment. As soldiers march in lockstep, they cease to be isolated individuals and become bonded to one another somatically. There is deep communal bonding in war and in training for war, a similar bonding that one might find in the intensity of an all-night entheogenic ritual or a four-day Sundance, or a collective fast. These bonds that one forges in times of intensity are bonds that are not forgotten. In many cultures, in war, as in ecstatic trance ritual, there is drumming, a pulse through which to entrain, to bond, to entrance, to synchronize. There is group song and invocation, marching songs and battle cries. We've all heard those trance-inducing battle cries on the big screen. And they do something, right? Even to a passive audience half the world and ten centuries away, they do something. Tell me that doesn't do anything to you somatically, or this. What matters is that you know in your hearts that today you are that kingdom united. 
You are England. Each and every one of you, England is you. And it is the space between you. Fight not for yourselves. Fight for that space. Fill that space. Make it tissue. Make it mass. Make it impenetrable. Make it yours. Make it England. Make it England. Or this. Vagonda! 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 Or this. That they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Or this. See, a few minutes ago there were tears of grief and horror as I spoke about fleeing children. And now, with just a little sonic provocation, the feeling is very, very different. This is worth paying attention to. This repetitive invocation, this group chant, this repetitive step, repetitive group entrainment becomes a doorway to consciousness alteration in war just as in ecstatic ritual. And consciousness alteration, as we'll explore, is right at the heart of war. Right at the heart of war lives a particular type of trance, a trance that human beings have held as precious for a very long time. There's even a term for it now, battle trance. Here's the encyclopedic definition, quote, Battle trance is a term denoting a specific altered state of consciousness. In this state, combatants do not feel fear or pain, and all the individual members of the group are acting as one collective organism. In this state, humans lose their individuality and acquire shared collective identity. Battle trance state may occur involuntarily. For example, a mother acting in total disregard of her own safety when her child is suddenly attacked. Or it can be induced by ritualistic behavior involving loud rhythmic group singing, stomping, and drumming, as well as the use of different psychogenic substances. End quote. Often, the transformation of consciousness in war is helped along with drugs. Ehrenreich notes how ancient Greek hoplites drank copious amounts of wine when they went into battle. Aztecs drank pulque, she says. Ancient Chinese troops got in the mood by drinking as well. Ancient Scythians smoked hemp. Whatever the mechanism of trance induction, it's pretty clear. Humans need to be in a trance in order to battle, and battle fulfills the human need for trance. Quote, most men undertake war only by entering what appears to be an altered state induced by drugs or lengthy drilling and denoted by face paint or khakis. And the face paint thing gets at something. In war and in ecstatic ritual, there is a process of systematic initiation. The warrior steps across an initiatory threshold and assumes a new identity. This initiation is often intertwined with the transition from adolescence to adulthood, and there is the sense that in crossing this initiatory threshold, there is the assumption of a new identity, and the adolescent has been left behind. As Aaron Reich says, quote, The man or boy leaves his former self behind and becomes something entirely different, perhaps even taking a new name. 
In small-scale traditional societies, the change was usually accomplished through ritual drumming, dancing, fasting, and sexual abstinence, all of which served to lift a man out of his mundane existence and into a new warrior-like mode of being, denoted by special body paint, masks, headdresses. As if to emphasize the discontinuity between the warrior and the ordinary human being, many cultures required that would-be fighting man to leave his humanness behind and assume a new form as an animal. The young Scandinavian had to become a bear before he could become an elite warrior. The Irish hero Cuculain transformed himself into a monster in preparation for battle. He became horrible, many-shaped, strange, and unrecognizable. So, modern military training, Aaron Reich says, aims at a transformation parallel to that achieved by traditional ritual initiation. Quote, In the fanatical routines of boot camp, a man leaves behind his former identity and is reborn as a creature of the military, an automaton willing killer of other men. This initiatory story points to another commonality between traditional ecstatic ritual and war, mythic narrative. The ritual reinforces a great mythology cosmology, links the individual to a larger story that connects person, community, place, and cosmos. War does this too. If you think that there are no mythic narratives in this current war, go listen to Alexander Dugan's rambling sometime. There are many mythic narratives at work on all sides. The heart of the mythic narrative is about being part of something larger. There are larger forces, greater things at play. The individual act of firing a gun or a shoulder rocket is what it is, but it becomes something much bigger when tied to a narrative. And with this sense of a larger story comes the ecstatic heart of what war provides. Present in both war and trance ritual is the original meaning of the word ecstasy, ekstasos, to stand outside oneself. Just after the horror of World War I, American psychologist G.E. Partridge described the primary mood of war to be one of ecstasy. And by this he meant, quote, the feeling of the individual being a part of a greater body and the sense of being lost in a greater whole. Aaron Reich says it was the sense of self-loss, Partridge opined, of merger into some greater whole, which showed that war was an attempt to meet the same psychological needs otherwise fulfilled by love, religion, intoxication, and art. And this is key. War is a somatic enactment of the dissolving of the self into the greater whole, even to the point of giving up one's life for the collective. The German poet Theodore Korner declared at the time of the Napoleonic Wars, happiness only lies in sacrificial death. And that can sound horrible and overly romanticized and a little bloviated. And then we look into it a little deeper. And we see that the bliss of conjunctive union, this exact experience of the sacrifice of the small self as it merges into the greater, is right at the heart of ecstatic ritual. It is the aim of ritual, in fact, to experience the melting of the self into the greater collective whole. This is ecstasy. This is ritual. This is also right at the heart of why people war. The annihilation of the individual cares and concerns in a space that exists outside of normal time. Time. There is a time of war. The best of times, the worst of times, times of wisdom and foolishness, it's been called. Springs of hope, winters of despair. 
Like I said at the beginning of this episode, these are raw, raw days. Have you felt, even from the outside, even the smallest taste of time feels a little different now, during the time of this war? Because the time of war interrupts regular time, it serves the same purpose that I spoke about in the festivals episode. It becomes a substitute for the sacred calendar, a time outside of time, a ritual time, a time that we as human beings need, a sanctified time, a non-linear time, which we used to find through ritualized holy days. Within this time outside of time, a great enactment takes place. Just as in the enactment of ritual, we often hear mention of the theater of war. This theater serves the same somatic purpose in its own twisted way that ritualized theatrical enactment originally served. There are even costumes. There are even masks. There is even body paint. Like all ecstatic ritual and all theatrical enactment, war funnels participants and spectators alike towards a very specific event. A rupture, a catharsis, the battle, the shedding of blood. At the height of many ecstatic rituals, there is the symbolic or actual shedding of animal blood. The deep human somatic need for ritualized rupture, for catharsis, for sparagmos, or tearing apart, is met in war. At the height of the ritual, the thyrsus strikes the ground, and thunder sounds and liquids pour forth. At the height of the ritual, the women cry at a fever pitch as the dagger plunges into the sacrificial animal. The moment of rupture and spilling is ritualized a thousand ways in a thousand cultures. And then, after the catharsis, there is a demarcation that delineates the return to ordinary time. And crossing this line often requires its own rituals. Returning warriors in many cultures had to go through painful rites to take them out of the altered state of being a warrior and to return them to being common again. Among the Talapong Indians of South America, victorious warriors flogged one another with whips and passed a cord covered with poisonous ants through their mouth and nose. Certain tribal warriors passed through a period of ritualized purging, vomiting over and over again, to get the war out of them. To assume the body of the warrior is to ritualize access into an altered state, and that state must be thoroughly relinquished before any type of reintegration into ordinary time and place can happen. So, through all these elements, through entrainment, bonding, drumming, song and invocation, through initiation, the merging of the individual into the greater in a specialized time of enactment, through the funneling towards a cathartic moment of rupture and sacrifice, participants in war enact a great ritual, enter into peak states, states of immediacy, of heightened perception, of time outside of time, of extasos, of conjunction with something larger. War, seen through this lens, is a mass consciousness alteration ritual. War is trance. Let's imagine for a moment, outside of its obvious horrors and terrors, 
the peak states, the raw states, the states of conjunctive union, the states of transformation that people have experienced in century after century of war. How many sunrises broke through across the wasteland after nights of deprivation and awe and caused the tears to fall at the beauty of another day? How many were driven to the point of total exhaustion and felt in that exhaustion states of consciousness they'd never felt before? How many times has momentum suddenly shifted on the battlefield and transported individuals from the depths of despair to the height of euphoria? How many times were senses wakened to weather, to shifts in the air, to the smell of soil, to the pulse pounding in the neck, to life in the midst of death? How many animate and angelic visitations came to people in times of war? How many saw luminous visions or heard inexplicable singing as all seemed lost and then suddenly was not lost? How many cries from the heart were uttered in urgent immediacy? How many breakthroughs, how many waves of tears of relief and rapture? We have, as human beings, a somatic attunement to urgency. Our somatic structures are woven around urgent experience. So that in war, people feel things, intensities, blisses, and pains that we only used to feel when? In extended hunts, in childbirth, in prolonged deprivation rituals, War creates a theater in which human beings experience states which we have held sacred for many thousands of years. And, of course, the linear mind might cut in here and say, is he saying war is good? Is he saying ritual ecstasy is bad? Neither nor. It's far more intricate than that. I'm saying that war fulfills all the things that human beings, particularly men, ritually and somatically need, but at an unthinkable cost. War becomes the way that men are allowed to feel their bodies, are allowed to feel intimacy, are allowed to shed tears, are allowed to find ecstasy, are allowed to find the ritual intensity they long for. War fulfills the need that intense cathartic ritual once fulfilled. It harnesses intense and primal needs and longings and takes the warrior practitioner to a place of presence and immediacy that we deeply crave. And so, if we want to understand war, we need to understand the heart of why we crave these things in the first place. Why the human need for ritual intensity. story, weaving itself through our tissues, expressing itself so fundamentally that it forms a large chunk of who and what we are, is a particular experience. An experience that goes all the way back to the food cycle of predator and prey. What are the deep beginnings of ritual ecstasy? What gave us conjunctive bliss before there was ceremony to enact it? There's a quote from the Upanishads that I mentioned long ago in the episode on sacrifice. It says simply, 
What bliss, what bliss, what bliss. I am food, and I am the eater of food. Right? I am both hunter and hunted. The basic cycle of nature is this. Everything that lives is both food and the eater of food. The mother devours other life to construct the embryo that will become the being. The being devours other lives to stay alive and then is ultimately devoured itself by nature. This life, the very cycle of nature itself, is one of birth, death, and devouring. As beings in this cycle, we are biologically constructed around this core experience, an experience of being at the mercy of the source of nourishment and the slayer of the source of nourishment simultaneously. When we dive into the root somatics of the food cycle, we see 300,000 years in which the source of all nourishment and life and bliss and the source of pain and trauma and possibly death were all one thing, the animal. We ate animals. Animals ate us. We were prey. Have you ever felt the feeling of being prey? That feeling? Alone in the woods far from home and you spot those very fresh mountain lion tracks? That feeling that uncaring jaws might devour us? That we might be a meal? What is that feeling? Can it be described with the word fear alone? The relationship with the animal was deep, intricate. It was fear, it was joy, it was reverential awe, it was tenderness, it was care, grief. Imagine all the simultaneously paradoxical feelings at the spilling of the animal's blood at the apex of the hunt. Joy at the abundance of the universe, relief at the ability to feed the baby's mouths another day, awe and exhaustion after being pushed to the physical limit. If a friend or companion was lost in the intensity of the hunt, these feelings were even more amplified. Grief at the loss of life, both animal and human. Recognition that no matter what, we are part of a larger cycle. Sadness at the nature of this cycle. Joy at the nature of this cycle. Direct connection to something greater through enacting this cycle. Perhaps a feeling of... Oh, merciful universe, what is this great paradox? That you have brought me here only to place me in this cycle of life and death. This is ecstasy. The pain and joy of the larger movement of nature, of which the individual self is only a tiny part. In this cycle for our ancestors, the animal was everything. Look at the love and detail in the paintings of animals on the walls of Lascaux. The tenderness, the reverence, paintings that modern scientists have said are more anatomically accurate than Renaissance paintings of animals. The animal was devourer, devoured. Life, death, we were at the mercy of animals, and they bestowed their gifts upon us and killed us in equal measure, just as life itself does. The animal was the deity. Look at the heroes clad in lion skins, the yogis seated on tiger skins, the shapeshifters, the jaguar shamans, the visions of goddess as lion devourer, the vision of deity as one who feeds. Our relationship of predator-prey, controller-controlled, is hardwired 
as our fundamental embodied experience of the universe. When asked, what are you afraid of? A full 85% of modern children aged five and six mention wild animals, snakes, lions, tigers, and bears, even though the ones surveyed had no meaningful interaction with wild animals. The relationship with the predation cycle and its associated awes and ecstasies and traumas and joys runs very, very deep. So deep that modern militaries still carry expressions of this deep animal reverence. How many military divisions are named after animals? The screaming eagles, the black cats, the navy seals, the iron snakes, the grizzlies, the elephants. The historic showdown between the United States and Russia in the Cold War was framed as the eagle versus the bear. China is routinely referred to as the dragon. Animals have always lived right at the heart of our ritualized violence and our ritualized ecstasies. Ehrenreich places the human drive to war right at that place where humans shifted from prey to predator. We were traumatized as prey. We became predator. But it's also much more intricate than she presents it. It's not just about we were traumatized and then became the traumatizer. It's about where fundamental experiences of bliss, awe, pain, fear, awakening actually come from, and how they are embedded in our root somatic structures, and how they long to be expressed. To be in the predation cycle was not just trauma. To be in the predation cycle was also bliss. There's a little Phoenician sculpture, some three thousand years old, of a lion taking a boy by the throat. It would be a horrible scene if it weren't for two things: the tenderness on the face of the lion, the blissful abandon and surrender on the face of the boy. My son has a game he likes to play. I'm supposed to try to eat him up. The look on his face as the game unfolds is one of simultaneous terror. And wonder and joy, all at once. The quickest path to ecstasy is one in which the lines between control and surrender are crossed, in which we find ourselves at the mercy of the great universe. We first felt this in the altered states that came with hunting, with childbirth, with the prolonged seeking of food and shelter. If it were not for this cycle of predation and prey, would we feel bliss at all? Where does bliss come from? Bliss is not simply about sitting around feeling safe and good and happy. Bliss is about death, and what it is to be a small being in a great world, and what it is to let go at last. So the state of ecstasy grew out of the somatic reality of being both predator and prey. Ecstatic states of consciousness grew directly out of our experience as hunter and hunted. Pain and bliss merged in these states. Fear and wonder and conjunctive awe merged in these states. For men, particularly who did not experience the pain, danger, terror, exhaustion, wonder, joy, rupture, bliss, union of childbirth, our interaction with the food cycle was our readiest access to ecstasy. In fact, this cycle of devouring and devoured lives right at the heart of why we do ritual at all. Quote, Writing in the 1960s, Conrad Lawrence noted the physiological parallels between what humans experience as religious awe 
and the arousal experienced by animals in the face of a threat. What is known in German as the Heiligoschauer, or holy shimmer of awe, may be a vestige of the widespread and entirely unconscious defensive response which causes an animal's fur to stand on end, thus increasing its apparent size. So fear, awe, bliss, ecstasy, all of these religious experiences, all of these experiences spurred by art, all of these experiences spurred in states of intoxication come directly from the primal experience of being both predator and prey. Lawrence was probably unaware that he was basically retelling an ancient Vedic story, a story that tells us directly of the origins of fear, awe, ecstasy, predation, and of ritual itself. The story goes that Prajapati, the primal being, the great vastness, was lonely. He longed for a companion. He harnessed this longing and heated himself up through performing great austerities. And as he heated himself, sparks of fire began to emanate from the hot places of his body, his head, his mouth, his armpits. The sparks formed themselves into a being, Agni, fire, a great flaming mouth. So at the very beginning, the heat of longing sparked into being a great mouth that set the cycles in motion. From that day, this world would be a world of transformation, of change, of fire, of forms devoured and reborn as other forms. Prajapati stared in awe at what he had created, and then a primal fear took him, a wonder, a shudder, a tremor, what if that mouth was going to eat him? That holy awe he felt, that fear, that wonder, that ecstasy caused a milky white substance to exude from his pores. Now he had something to offer the mouth of fire so that he himself would not be eaten. So the first ritual offering came as something exuded in a state of holy awe directly spurred by the food cycle. This world, seen this way, is a great devouring mouth forever feeding. This is the root of trauma. This is the root of bliss. Tell me, is a kiss an act of tenderness or of mutual devouring? Or is it both? Human beings are not wired with pain equals bad, bliss equals good, and these things live totally separate. That's a Puritan construct. There is bliss in painful ritual. There is pain at the height of bliss. The search for pain is not totally separate from the search for bliss. And the search for bliss is not fully separate from the search for pain. Violence is not without its intimacy. Intimacy is not without its violence. Understanding this leads us right to the roots of bliss, of trauma, of art, of ritual, of wonder. This is why the word wonder and wound share a common root. On the walls of Lascaux, a hunter falls, wounded and aroused, and gazing up to the sky all at the same time. Our history is a history of pain and bliss as one thing. 300,000 years of childbirth before painkillers, the holy awe of where the next meal will come from, the urgency of not being able to find food for days followed by the rush that came with the location of a buzzing honeycomb. The step into the dark cave. The step across the threshold into the dark, dark cave. Is it shelter from the storm? Is it salvation? 
Is it home to a devouring beast? Is it death that waits in that cave, or is it life? It is holy awe. It is terror. It is bliss. We are food and the eaters of food. We are food and the eaters of food. It is all of it. What bliss, what bliss, what bliss. So the primary purpose of ritual is to enact this very food, eater of food, bliss, pain, ecstasy cycle in order to take us into the states of consciousness that were afforded to our ancestors who were part of the cycle. Ritual takes us into necessary conjunctive states where we feel things that were once only felt when we were in direct relation with apex predators. A whole lot of ritual literally enacts the devouring cycle. There is sacrifice, there are food offerings. As Greek religious scholar Walter Burkhardt tells us, sacrificial killing is the basic experience of the sacred. In ritual, something is always fed. The gods are fed so that they don't feed on us. The gods offered Durga a sacrifice directly in order to appease predators. In South India, snakes are ritually fed so they won't feed on people. Ritual is the very enactment of the food cycle and the bliss and pain that comes with it. And it's interesting, if you look at cultures that are still deeply in the cycle, hunting cultures, they have very little sacrificial ritual involving the spilling of blood because they live the sacrificial ritual. Then, with the growth of agriculture, ecstatic states that used to be available to the hunter became less available. And so we ritualize these states. We recognize their necessity. We recognize both that we needed to feel ecstasy and we recognize that there was a very specific danger that could come from no longer being so deeply immersed in the food chain. What is that danger? It's this. If we don't have the ritual outlet in which to enact the cycle of predator and prey, we will prey on each other instead. There's an old story which I know you've heard, the story of the first family of Cain and Abel in the Bible. Cain is jealous of Abel because God favors him, so he slays Abel in the first act of human-to-human -human killing. Yeah, you've heard it, but do you remember why exactly in that story God favors Abel? Because Abel tends animals, and so he offers regular animal sacrifice to God, regular ritual blood. Cain is an agriculturalist. All he can offer is grass and seeds. God doesn't like that as much. So the one within the animal cycle is closer to God. The agriculturalist removed from the cycle becomes the perpetrator of violence. Violence in this vision, human-to-human -human violence, comes with the removal of the human being from the predator-prey cycle. Violence comes through the agricultural brother who no longer has the daily enactment of ritual sacrifice to bring him closer to nature. Without prey, we prey on each other. You can find it in the Bible, and of course, you can also find it in the Jane's Addiction song, Three Days. Quote, True hunting's over, no herd to follow. Without game, men prey on each other. The family weakens by the bite we swallow. 
Without game, men prey on each other. Removed from the cycle of ritualized, ecstatic, joyous, painful feeding offering, we offer each other up instead, because we still long for those states, those raw states, those ecstasies, those steps across the threshold. We still long for the urgent sight of the bristling animal, jaws gnashing. We long for the dilation of our eyes, the rising of neck hair. We long, in some ways, to be devoured, to let go, to surrender. We long for ecstatic intensity. We long to offer, to feed others, to feed the world. We need ritualized remembrance of our place, our place, our place within the devouring waters, our place among the devouring grasses, within the devouring winds. Our place of momentary rending teeth in a world of jaws and eyes. Our place with our bones borrowed from others' lives. Our place as momentary singers in the ravenous vastness of night. Our place beneath the fires of the devouring stars. I heard an elder once say this: "What the earth doesn't receive in prayer, she takes in blood." Now that can sound pretty punitive and drastic. It's an intense statement, but there's something in there too that always stuck with me. If we don't ritualize our presence within the great cycle, if we don't offer back, then other things will be offered, up to and including ourselves. The more our need for ritual offering, for ritual intensity, is suppressed into the unconscious or deemed unnecessary or filed away as irrational, the more it will find other ways to express itself. The ritual animist understands that you don't simply get rid of the human need to express and ritualize intensity, ecstasy, sacrifice. So, from this animist perspective, war can be seen to arrive when we are not feeding forces that need to be fed. War is a great sacrificial offering to beings that need to be fed, to the food cycle, to the food cycle we were once part of, that we are still part of, that we need to honor. We fail to do so at our peril. There's no question that as we grew away from the natural hunting-gathering cycle of sacrifice and offering, war grew uglier. War has changed. It changed with the transition from hunter to agriculturalist. It changed much more dramatically with industrialization. The more modern we've become, the worse war has gotten. And we have to be careful here not to overglamorize traditional indigenous societies. There have been plenty of indigenous societies that warred on each other, that tortured each other, even that committed genocide. There are tribes that will directly tell you in their oral histories that they completely annihilated other tribes. It doesn't do anyone a service to paint a picture of indigenous history as all noble and peaceful and idyllic. It doesn't do anyone a service to point at European colonialism as responsible somehow for all war, like there was no war before the 1400s outside of England and France. History is full of warriors, full of cannibals, full of sacrificial death. History is full of war. 
But we can also understand that in many traditional societies, the human need for ritual violence was channeled and distributed in ways that made all-out war unnecessary, war in which the point was to eradicate every last person unnecessary. Violence, when given channels for ritual expression, looks very different than people hacking each other to pieces on the battlefield. In a recent paper, Aboriginal author Tyson Yonkaporta talks about differences between modern European settler violence and how traditional Aboriginal cultures treated violence. Quote, Ancient indigenous customs of rule-governed violence deployed to minimize harm and resolve disputes is undeniably evident in traditional lore. Dixon cites a Nyampa dreaming story in which a community leader, assisted by the rainbow serpent, developed a martial arts system called Corrida based on the fighting rituals of kangaroos in order to curb the excesses of violence. Indigenous legal scholar Larissa Barrent asserts that contemporary Aboriginal dispute resolution remains true to traditional values and that in traditional law, grievances that cannot be dealt with through adjudication in meetings, public shouting or yelling to air the issue, or through temporary exile, are resolved through ordeals of rule-governed violence. Barrent says, My father told me how the men in our area would meet for battle with the men of the clan they were in dispute with and as soon as the first man was injured, they would go home. This story highlights the symbolism of the practice of ordeal. W.E.H. Stanner described indigenous ritualized violence as a way to, quote, control, approve, and enjoy, and importantly to limit, aggressive aspects of human nature. Gaynor MacDonald, writing of the Wiradjuri people in the 1980s, observed that a fight was an event in which the whole community might participate. The whole community, so violence evenly distributed through a society's rituals and customs within the recognition of a greater law of balance, can become something very different, very different than shelling theaters full of civilians, very different. What is very rare in traditional societies is a vision of peace that looks like we in the modern world tend to think of peace. You know, that lily-white vision of peace? Have you seen that vision of peace? I remember the Jehovah's Witnesses used to come to my door and hand out pamphlets featuring pictures of the peaceful paradise that awaits us. And apparently peace on earth involves a lot of white people in pastel sweaters and khakis. Peace on earth is very 1983 suburban Philadelphia country club, you know, orthodontists for everyone and lambs and lions frolicking in a golf course that goes on forever. But that's not real. The golf course that goes on forever is itself built on violence. This gets at what Tyson calls the outsourcing of violence. Cultures who never have to think about violence, who live a suburban gated life in which violence is never a question, have not necessarily found peace. Instead, they've outsourced their violence. Outsourced to the underclass who supports their lifestyle. Outsourced to the children who choke on the fumes as they stitch their shoes outsourced to the ecosystems pillaged by their modern appetites. This isn't peace. There may indeed be a place where the lion lies down with the lamb. It's actually the wolf and the lamb in the original biblical text. But that place is the place of conjunctive bliss, where predator and prey, wolf and lamb, control and surrender fuse into one. That is the place where, as it says, the nursing child plays over the snake's hole. 
the place where pain and bliss, medicine and poison, breast milk and snake venom become one, the place of ritual ecstasy. Peace requires a healthy relationship with our need for intensity. Peace is not a void absence. Peace is enacted through vigorous ritual that harnesses the intensities of those prone to make war, so that our young men get, as Tyson says, something meatier than a mindfulness course, so that, you know, we could employ all of our soldiers in the ritualized re-greening of the world, complete with extended festivals and dances and rituals of ecstasy and pain and athletic initiations as we plant and regrow and cultivate. For peace, for many indigenous cultures, still involves people going through excruciatingly painful initiations and regular rituals of intensity, the intensity of deprivation, the intensity of physical exertion, drumming, dancing for days at a time, the intensity of fasting, sometimes the intensity of deliberately inflicting pain on the body. And this gets at something that's really important to talk about here. The misguided notion that the more quote-unquote rational we become, that somehow we evolve away from war. That war is a vestige of primitivism or religiosity that would go away if only everyone could adopt a rational worldview. And I'll say this straight up. It is a puritanical construct to view war as something that can simply be reasoned away. It's an extension of the primitive, irrational versus civilized, rational dichotomy that has plagued the Western mind for over a thousand years. The most destructive wars in human history came at the very height of the age of reason. A hundred million dead, and we're the rational ones. It's quite possible that the least warlike population lived 20,000 years, 30,000 years before the age of reason. And we're the rational ones? Reason and war are best friends. Reason is harnessed in service of war all the time. War was considered at a certain point in European history the most rational of all endeavors. Rational minds developed the cannon. Leonardo invented the tank. Rational minds gave us the Gatling gun and the Trident submarine and the bomb that evaporated 75,000 people, mostly women and children, at Hiroshima. That bomb developed right across the river and up the hill from where I'm sitting. The missile technologies that are killing children right now in Ukraine were created by rational scientists. Does trust the science get us to peace? Depends entirely on which scientist we're trusting. The small minority of climate scientists or the far larger number who are designing hypersonic missiles and more efficient guidance systems and assassination drones and tactical nuclear weapons. I know God breathes on me. I know God breathes on me. The idea that scientific reason alone is going to usher in an age of peace ignores hundreds of years of history in which scientific reason has been directly intertwined with war and destruction. So, can reason be an antidote to war? Sure, but it depends on what your premise is. Reason isn't an end. Reason only operates in relation to a premise. If your premise is that my tribe is better than yours, then reason will come up with all kinds of ways to enact that premise. If your premise is that he who dies with the most toys wins, 
then reasonable rationality will be put in service of the most addictive, gluttonous forms of capitalism. If, however, your premise is that we need to construct a world in which long-term, 10,000-year harmony is possible among people and all species, then yes, reason can be put in service of that too. And I sure wish that it would. Reason in service of that premise will probably tell us that we need creative and ritual channels for our more intense drives, that we need initiation ritual, that there is a certain time when our young folks need to go through the demolishment of the egoic self and the uplift of the communal in peak states in order to curb and crush the would-be war makers. We need the adolescent to adult initiation ritual. On the first night of bombing Ukraine, Vladimir Putin said in his speech, I hope that I have been heard. And all I could think was, this is what you need to do to feel heard. This is an adolescent who never had an initiation ritual. This is someone who never went through the ritual from petulant adolescence to adulthood. This is someone who was never ground into dust through the dance and the fast and the sweat until they felt in their hearts the only true rational vision of the place that each human being holds before creation. I'm not better than anybody else. I'm not better than anybody else. I'm nothing. But all of us together, all of us together, we are something. We are something. Right now, I see a world of adolescent leaders who have not made the initiatory step into adulthood. Where are the adult leaders? Where is wisdom? Where is reason in service of love? I want reason to be used in this best possible way, reason in service of love. For the alternative is unfathomable. To continue warring in an age of climate change? To blow up pipelines in an age of climate change? The alternative is humanity casting itself on the altar of sacrifice over and over again into eternity. As Ukrainian artist Daria Lazatova posted the other day from the midst of it all, quote, Every day I imagine myself standing on the highest mountain, contemplating the world, wondering what the use of all books, songs, and conversations, paintings and cathedrals, dinner parties and holidays, hugs and kisses is when down below people have chosen, of all things available, to kill other people. I think about all resources this planet offers every single second for us to enjoy. Every minute of our lives can be filled creatively, passionately, with joy and laughter transformed into an unforgettable memory just like that. I think about how people meet and fall in love, about enthusiasm, generosity, and kindness, experiences that can't be bought, and the infinite possibilities of imagination. I want to believe that these things stand out as bright, beautiful spots equally seen, appreciated, and desired by everyone, especially from high up above, where the air is clearer and the view is better. Then, after a minute of this daydream, I suddenly fall back onto the ground, with yet another news of a family shot down while trying to escape, another high-rise shelled, another lie, excuse, and threat. I climb back to the top of the mountain again, 
I need to not lose sight of the bright spots. I am going to climb that bloody mountain again and again and again until this war is fucking over. And after each climb, I will bit by bit bring down strength, hope, faith, and clarity. Ultimately, truth be told, I don't have good answers for why we choose this over and over. I feel what I've said today about these deep human needs, and still I find war unfathomable, even more unfathomable now that I'm a father. And perhaps there are some things that can and should never be understood, that should always remain unfathomable. What I do understand in what little way that I can is that if we want peace, then we must understand deeper what drives us. We must forge alternative havens. Not endless golf courses, but rigorous rituals of resonance, great expiatory festivals, through which our ecstasies and intensities are sung aloud in choirs of a thousand voices. Ten thousand voices. Where we drum and dance and cry and sing. And sing and sing the starkness of the light, and sing the presence of benevolent animacies that arrive in blustery golden hours, and sing the triumph of the great goddess of time, and sing the space into which all dissolves, and sing and sing, and look to a day, as that one text says, when the earth will be replete with the conjunctive knowledge of nature, just as the waters cover the sea. O Creator, O Creator, O Creator, may it be. O Creator, O Creator, O Creator, may it be. Special thanks to the vocalist Sidibe for the beautiful vocals on this episode. And you can find her work on Spotify. Sidibe is S-I-D-I-B-E. And as always, this episode contains reference to many books, movies, songs, etc. These include the book Blood Rights by Barbara Ehrenreich. Highly recommended, and this episode wouldn't have been possible without this book. Lost Ecstasy by June McDaniel. The podcast Hardcore History by Dan Carlin. The Taitaria Upanishad, the book Ardor by Roberto Colasso, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, Homo Neckens, The Anthropology of Greek Sacrificial Ritual by Walter Burkert, The Bible, the work of sociologists Joseph Jordania and psychologist G.E. Partridge. Special thanks to Tyson Yankaporta for letting me use his not-yet-finished paper on settler-on-settler violence, ritual protocols, and YouTube street fight videos, and he's writing that along with Dr. Kelly Menzel. The films Braveheart, 
Gladiator, The Return of the King, and The King, the TV show Vikings, The Drums of Drakkar, the song Hebrides by the Hellish Bagpipes, the song God Breathed by Kanye West, the work of Daria Lazatova. You can find her beautiful art on Instagram. It's D-A-R-I-A-H-L-A-Z-A-T-O-V-A. The song Straight to Hell by The Clash. The song Gunpowder by Wyclef Jean. Edvard Grieg's Morning Mood. The song Wasted Life by The Stiff Little Fingers. Definitely on the list of the top five punk rock anti-war songs of all time. And, of course, the song Three Days by Jane's Addiction. If you ever find yourself deep in the Sedona desert at sunset time on copious amounts of entheogens, it's probably the perfect song to be listening to. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. (laughs) 